Welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'm Matt Manicherian, former NFL scout and now of Sports Info Solutions, joined as always by Aaron Schatz, the godfather of football analytics and the founder of Football Outsiders. We've got our producer, Justin Stein, with us. And today we have a very special guest. You know Trey Wingo well. Right now, he is the host of the podcast, Half Forgotten History, season two of which is all about the Super Bowl. And I think there's a Super Bowl coming up pretty soon. So we thought it'd be a good time to have him on. Trey, thank you so much for coming on the show. How's it going? Going great. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, great to see you. And Aaron, I really enjoyed your work for many, many years. So great to be on with you as well. Excellent. As much as I love complimenting Aaron, uh, we should get into the football questions. <laughs> Let's jump right into it. And we wanted to ask you, first of all, about these games that we just saw over the past weekend. What was your reaction to the Chiefs' AFC Championship game victory over the Bills? I went into that game thinking the Bills had very little chance to win. And even when they were down nine, the Chiefs, I I didn't ever feel like they were in danger. Uh, This was just a bad matchup all the way across, Uh, you know. Well, there's a couple things. First of all, I believe the Chiefs are special and unique and very different. I've been on them since they won the Super Bowl last year. I think they're going to repeat. And uh, nothing I've seen so far has made me change my mind. But you know, you go into that game and you look at what happened the last time they played. I think it was week six in Buffalo. The Bills didn't blitz Patrick Mahomes once in that game. Not one time. It was the first time since 2016 we've had an NFL game without a single blitz. Why is that? Because since he became a starter in 2018, Patrick Mahomes is number one against the blitz and completion percentage, passing yards, touchdown interception ratio, and yards per attempt. So if you're going to blitz him, he will kill you. So in that week six game, they decided, you know what? We're going to hang back and let them see if they can march down the field. Well, they ran for 245 yards in that game. They get Clyde Edwards-Hilaire back in this contest. It was really, it was just a matter of by how much, in my opinion, when it was all said and done. And the other thing that was just a horrible for Buffalo, and look, they, they are a good team and they're going to be around for a while. They've done a great job in building things around Josh Allen. But they also gave up the most receptions to tight ends last year. Travis Kelsey's a pretty good tight end. So there, there was really, there was no matchup that I looked at and said, yes, this favors Buffalo. So I thought 38-24 was about as close as that game could possibly be. The Chiefs did a good job in the red zone, which was interesting because their defense was dead last in the red zone. They settled, they made Buffalo settle for a couple of field goals. But honestly, even when it was 9 nothing, I didn't feel like the Chiefs were ever in danger. And the better team with the better quarterback won. And that's usually not a surprise. See, I think that I thought that the Bills' offense against the Chiefs' defense was probably a good matchup for them. So I expected a shootout where both teams had lots of points, and I was very impressed by how well the Kansas City defense has played over the last two games. Yeah, the Chiefs defense is is weird. It's kind of like the Colts defense when they got to Super Bowl 41. You know, at times during the regular season, it was awful, including I think it was week 15 when Jacksonville ran for 370 yards on them. The only thing that stopped them was the goalpost uh, in that game. But you know, the Chiefs' defense is situationally really pretty good. Uh, you know, Tyron Matthew, well, this kid, Legarius Sneed, has been unbelievable in the playoffs. He's been phenomenal. Obviously, Matthew is a difference maker. And they have a couple of guys on that defensive line that can't create problems in Clark and Chris Jones. Um, you know, in every game that they played in the postseason, you know, the Daniel Sorison play on the, on the Rashad Higgins touchback, which is all, obviously the worst rule in football, but it is what it is. Um, they find a way to come up with a couple of stops. And even the AFC Championship game, they lost to the Patriots a couple of years ago when D. Ford lined up offside. 
They got an interception off Brady that would have would have sealed that game, but it was called back because he lined up in the neutral zone. So the Chiefs defense is one of those weird defenses where by the numbers, they're not very good. But when you watch them play in critical situations, they usually manage to find a way to make enough plays to get it done. It's complimentary football, which I guess when you have, when you have Patrick Mahomes, the way that your defense has to play to win is a little bit different than you know if you if you're Trent Dilfering it. Yeah, let me ask you about the NFC Championship game. What was your take on the play calling by Matt Lafleur at the end of the game? There's been a lot of debate about Lafleur whether they should have gone for it on fourth and goal from the eight compared to kicking that field goal and hoping that their defense could then stop Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay offense. I don't know. You know, we talk about the play calling on fourth down so much in the analytics world. What's your take on it? Well, to me, the big the big issue was third down, right? And Aaron said so in the post-game press conference. To me, if once you get into that situation, I think you as a quarterback and the play caller or the head coach, or sometimes both, need to be on the same page that, hey, we're either going for this or we're not going for this. If it gets to it on fourth down, because when he was asked after the game, Aaron said, you know, if I didn't think we were going for it on fourth down, I would have called, maybe called a different or if I, we thought we were going for it on third and fourth down, I would have called a different play on third down. And that, to me, is the bigger issue. Like, it's the same thing that I saw in the, in the Colts game against the Bills, where Frank Wright called that jet sweep uh, that lost them three yards, and then they still went for it. Like, if you're going for it on fourth down, don't call that jet sweep play because that has the potential to lose yards. So make sure you have two plays that will get you closer to the goal line. So the issue with me wasn't so much going for it on fourth down, as Aaron said, I, it wasn't my decision. I didn't know we were kicking it until I saw the, those five big guys running off the field. That tells me they needed to be in lockstep by, look, we're going for it on fourth down. So let's make sure we call, if nothing else, we call a third down play that will get us into a reasonable situation on fourth down. Because fourth and eight is not great. There's, there's no guarantees. And I, I can certainly understand in that situation, maybe you kick, you have the three timeouts. And I think the two-minute warning still at that point. And you have four stoppages, and it almost worked if it hadn't been for the, the defensive holding call, which was the right call, by the way. They didn't call most of the game, but that was an egregious one. That was obvious. To me, the bigger issue from a game management perspective was, if we're if I know I'm going for it on fourth down, maybe we do something else on third down. And also on that third down play, if you look at it, he could have easily picked up five yards if he had just run it. So that's that's what I wanted to ask about. So if you're talking about, I agree with everything you said, but if you're talking about if he had known that they were going to that they were going to go on fourth down that they weren't going to go on fourth down if he thought that they were going on fourth down at that moment isn't that even more reason why he should have pulled it down to me i think that's hindsight's 2020 20, but there's a, there's a little bit there that doesn't quite add up in terms of well if you were so sure you were going to go for it on fourth down then that was a really bad decision there aaron <laughs> yeah i thought the same thing which is if they were going to go for it on fourth down if he knew they were going to go for it on fourth down then it's not, we either have to get into the end zone. Either I have to be able to run into the end zone or I need to throw it into the end zone. It's, let's see if I can get four or five yards here and make fourth down easy. Yeah, I think that was the bigger problem they had. And it doesn't didn't seem like from the post-game comments that Aaron and Matt were on the same page. And it's funny, like, you go back to the regular season game they played last year. I think it was a Sunday night game against the Chiefs when Mahomes was injured. Uh, I think Chad Henning was playing in that game, if I'm not mistaken. I, I can't remember. Maybe he wasn't. You know, you see that shot of Matt LaFleur on the sidelines telling Aaron, go win the game. Like, you tell him that in that situation, right? I mean, you, you, I get when it's fourth and eight, 
and you have, I think, four stoppages and a field goal gives you still a chance to win with a touchdown, even though in that situation you need a touchdown and a uh, two-point conversion to tie. But it seemed to me like they weren't on the same page of, look, this is what we're going to do on third down. This is what we're going to do on fourth down. We talk about it all the time, situational football. and No team has been better than that over the years than the New England Patriots. And it just, it just seemed to me like that was the issue. Whether or not they went for it on fourth down, to me, was a byproduct of the miscommunication on how are we going to handle all four downs inside the 10-yard line. Both the Edge Sports model and the uh, SIS model, we had about a 3% uh, win probability improvement by going for it there. But I think Aaron and I would both agree to, with you that 3%, there are times when you can make the opposite decision and it, and it can be an okay thing to do. But the lack of communication is what's really inexcusable. Let me ask you a question, actually, Trey, as a broadcast guy. One of the things that analytics people often talk about on, on the Twitter is when things like this come up, wouldn't it be useful to have an analytics guy in the studio for each network the way that they now have an officiating guy, right? The way they can throw it to Mike Pereira or Dean Blandino and be like, so what do officials think about this? You know, as an official, what do you think about this call, this pass interference, et cetera? Do you think it would work to have like an analytics guy for each network who whenever we came to one of these close fourth down decisions could, you know, somebody who was trained obviously in broadcast could succinctly explain this is the analytics position on this play? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we have those now. Like CBS does a great job using Jay Feely in kicking situations for, for a lot of those situations. So absolutely. To, to me, the broadcast team should to do their best job always to – understand that they should broadcast the game the way most people are consuming the game, right? And that's sort of been the issue with fantasy football and how much that is brought up, especially during the regular season, obviously not as much during the postseason, but that's what everyone's talking about. Like one of the things I love about a football Sunday uh, is everybody is together on Twitter, sometimes yelling at each other, but at separate times, you know, sharing, well, I thought this or I saw this and I saw that. That's the way everyone consumes the sport now. And I think it would be a very heads-up move to have somebody be your designated analytics guy, much in the same way almost every team, whether they want to admit it or not, has someone whose job it is to crush those numbers and be that analytic guy on that staff. And I think it would be a really, really interesting addition to the broadcast because if you can talk to me in the same way that I'm watching the game on the buddies with my couch, then I'm going to be more invested. All right. We had a couple of kind of fluff questions in here, but I want to jump ahead to make sure that we have some time and get into the nitty gritty of the Super Bowl matchup. One matchup that we have seen in the Super Bowl before that'll play out again is Steve Spagnuolo's defense against Tom Brady. What do you look forward to about the matchup between the Bucks offense and the Chiefs defense? Well, it's interesting, right? Because I think what we've seen this postseason is that what happened in the regular season mattered. We saw Green Bay go down to Tampa and get thumped and Tampa Bay uh, found a way to win. The only reason that game was close in the second half was because Brady threw three interceptions on three straight drives. Um, that's usually what keeps a team in a game, even though they only got six points off those three turnovers, which was another big problem for Green Bay. Uh, we saw in the regular season that, like I said, Kansas City went to Buffalo and handled them pretty easy. It was a nine-point game in the rain uh, and took care of that. These two teams met in the regular season. They did. And, you know, for whatever reason, they had Carlton Davis, the corner, singled up on Tyree Gill in the first half, and that was a disaster. I don't think they'll do that again. Listen, nobody matches up with the Chiefs' offense. I just want to be clear about that. Like, you can have all this stuff, and you can do this, but at the end of the day, when you see how fast Tyree comes out of his break, and you see Michael Harbin, how fast he can turn on that 51-yard 
uh, run that sort of got their offense jump started. There's, you know, people are like, well, you got to run the ball to, to, to slow down the Bucks. That doesn't, I mean, the, the Chiefs, that doesn't happen. You have to outscore them. You have to find a way to outscore them. That's the way it's going to be. You know, the 22 points against Cleveland was the outlier because, you know, Mahomes got hurt early on in the third quarter. It was 19 to three and should have been 23 to three at that point. And Butker had missed an extra point and a field goal from extra point distance. So that game was on its way to a blowout. You have to outscore them. So the front seven of Tampa Bay is going to present a problem for Kansas City. There's no question about it, especially with the loss of Fisher. Uh, that, that's a real issue for them because Mitchell Schwartz hasn't been there for most of the year as well. So they're basically missing their two best tackles, their two best offensive linemen. But at the end of the day, Mahomes and schedule that will compensate, in my opinion, from any advantage the Bucs have with JPP and Shaq Barrett and Levante David and Dominican Sue and now Vita Bay out there. I mean, those are big stout guys. There's no question about it. But you saw it a couple of times in the game against the Bills. The Bills did blitz Patrick Mahomes a couple of times in that uh, in that conference championship game, and he made them look silly. Like to me, the biggest difference in the Super Bowl in general is going to be what happens when they're off schedule. You saw what happened to the Bucks offense when Green Bay got to him a couple of times. Didn't look that great. Mahomes' greatest gift of the many gifts that he has is when the machine breaks down, he still finds the way to make a play. So if the Bucks are going to break through, they have to get him to the ground, right? If the Bills were going to blitz, they had to get him to the ground. That didn't happen. If the Bucks can get through, they've got to get him to the ground because if he makes that one guy miss, he's going to find Kelsey or Pringle or Hardman, or God forbid, Reek for a 60-yard play, as we saw the first time they, they played. To me, the, the key to the success for Tampa Bay on the Super Bowl is they've got to dominate that, that front seven, but they also have to finish. They can't let the first guy miss, which has been a problem for everybody that's faced Kansas City. Yeah, they blitzed in the first matchup, the Week 12 matchup. They actually did blitz Mahomes a few times, and this will shock you, it didn't go well. Here the, like here the, you know this, Aaron. Here are the numbers for Mahomes since he became a starter. He's number one across the board, whether it's completion percentage, yards, yards per attempt, touchdown interception ratio. It doesn't matter. So you better get him if you're going to blitz him. Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt. I think Todd Bowles, the way that he he would like to come after people, but he's going to mix things up. I don't think there's any other way that you can that you can go after Mahomes other than mixing it up and avoiding going after the blitz too much. I like your point about how he's Mahomes is such a great equalizer that you really do have to dominate everything else about them in order to just have a chance because third and 15 for Mahomes is like third and three for a normal quarterback. It's just, and then if the play breaks down, the off, the off schedule stuff's just as good as the on schedule stuff. He can throw it, he can run it. It's a huge problem. You know, we did some crunching of the numbers, but you know, we, the metric was third and long, which I think was seven, right? Third and seven. His numbers, like early on in the season, obviously they've changed a little bit. I think they got bored. Like the Chiefs really, I believe, got bored in the season. It's like a kid playing with their food. Yeah, you're a believer in that, the flip the switch theory. Well, not so much a flip the switch theory, but I, I think they knew what they were and they knew where they wanted to be and they just wanted to get there. Because I've come around to it. I've come around to it. There's never been an NFL team that's ever really been like that, but we've seen it in the NBA. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think that they knew where they wanted to go. And I think they've, they've been on this thing to repeat since it ended last year. I mean, like, as good as the Bucks' defense is, and it's good, don't get me wrong, I would argue that last year's Niners' defense was probably better, right? When you had Bosa and DeForest Buckner and all those guys. I would agree with that. And that front seven did a great job until Mahomes said, you know what, enough of this. 
third and 17, Wasp, here we go. You know, it was 21 to 10 with eight minutes to play in the fourth quarter. And that front seven was absolutely dominating, albeit against a better offensive line that the Chiefs will present to Tampa on Super Bowl Sunday. But it still wasn't enough. And, and, and you could argue, well, yeah, they had Jimmy Garoppolo. And yeah, I get it. But this is not peak Tom Brady we're talking about. He's played well down the stretch. But, you know, that, that second half, Tom was average. And I know that's a heresy to say. He played poorly. He, he, yeah, thank you. He was great in the first half. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, the inexplicable decision by Kevin King and Mike Patton for that, that coverage at the end of the half when all you had to do was tackle somebody in bounds and the half was over. That was Greg Williams' inception, though. That was Greg Williams' totally inception to that play. It, it, right. But, I mean, like, my point is, okay, even if they do that, if you're Kevin King, the last thing you can do is let the – it's like he was trying to jump the route. He even kind of slowed down a little bit. Well, while, while Miller was getting behind him, like even it's almost like he slowed down to look at Brady, and it's like no, you can't, you can't let the guy get behind you. You can't slow down. That's a good point. It's a bad call, but the technique was terrible. I don't know how you're playing single high and you're letting a guy actually get outside leverage on you like that. It just it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Like I, I would have like rushed two or three and flooded the goal line and just doubled everybody and make sure somebody's behind it. It was a myriad of things, and then of course they, they compounded the error with the fumble by Aaron Jones to start the half and the giving touchdown and the only reason that game was close was because Brady did not play well in the second half he threw three interceptions so look, the Brady thing is interesting because I think everyone's like oh my god it's Brady the Super Bowl has done this before he has but the guy he's playing is better than him and I don't think it's really a stretch to say he's better than him by a lot right now that kind of answers the question about how you would put Brady playing in another Super Bowl in historical context because like it's an amazing feat but if you look at just this game, he's not the better quarterback. No. Look, look there, there will never be anything like we've seen from Brady. These are the, the fallbacks I, I go to, right? He didn't play his rookie year except for one game. And then in 2008, he missed all of the first half of the first game with the torn ACL. So he's had 19 career full seasons as a star. He's been to 10 Super Bowls. Okay. More than half of his seasons have ended up with him playing for the opportunity to win the Lombardi Trophy, which is insane. It will never happen. I mean, there are 30-year assistants in the NFL that play for four teams or coach for four or five teams that get to five. And this guy has won six, has lost three, and is going for a tenth in 19 full seasons as a starter. It's never going to happen again. He's so far off the chart where the outlier is, you can't even see the normal curve. But in terms of who he's playing, and he's not playing him, I get that, who the opposing quarterback is, that guy is better than anybody right now, and I don't think it's close. I, I, yeah, I think Tom Brady is something like like Wilt Chamberlain, Phil Jackson, in terms of you know the championship type. It, it's, it's on a different level. Looking forward, uh, we talked a whole bunch about the game. Looking forward to the offseason, it's looking like it's going to be a lot of quarterback musical chairs coming back. Which quarterback would you most like to see land with which team in 2021? It's interesting. I was just going through the list where you have Ben Roethlisberger and his cap hit. You have what the Rams are saying about Jared Goff, Matthew Stafford wanting a train, Deshaun Watson absolutely wanting out of there. What's going to happen with Carson Wentz in Philadelphia? Aaron Rodgers basically saying his career is mystical. Matt Ryan, uh, what's going to happen with him is the, the Falcons have a very high draft pick, but they can get a quarterback. You know, Deshaun Watson had an historically great season that no one knew about or cared unless you watched every Texans game. And, you know, the J.J. Watt 
video of him saying we wasted one of your seasons was the most honest and accurate thing that anyone can say about the Texans, and they are a dumpster fire right now. I would like to see Deshaun Watson get somewhere where he has an opportunity. Uh, but the other one I have to bring up is Matthew Stafford. You know, the Lions have had so many great, like historically great players, and they've wasted their careers, whether it was Barry Sanders or Calvin Johnson. And I'm not putting Matthew Stafford at that level. But I don't think anybody fully appreciates how good of a quarterback and how gutty of a quarterback Matthew Stafford has been because he plays in Detroit. If he played anywhere else, I think people would look at him completely differently. So I would love to see Stafford, like Denver. Let me just throw Denver out there, okay? The Drew Locke thing, I was was high on Drew Locke. It hasn't worked out yet for a variety of reasons. They made a huge investment in this draft to go out and get players that they thought they had to go outscore Kansas City with, whether it was K.J. Hamler, Jerry Judy, uh, you know, they get the tight end to go with the fans. They have a lot of weapons. And if they could find a quarterback that could find ways to move down the field, that would be very interesting to me. The thing about Deshaun, like, obviously I think the the, the Jets are are a team that's going to make a lot of sense to them. But if the Texans do, with inside 12 months, trade away, DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson, even though on some level might make the right move because of what they can get back and they have no picks and all this kind of stuff, they should be relegated, right? Like we, should, like they do in Champions League. You should be relegated if you trade away those two players because you don't understand football. And unfortunately, we can't send them to the CFL or the Arena League or anything else. But those, those are the two quarterbacks that off the top of my head, I would like to see move to a team where they have an opportunity, just an opportunity to get out of the miserable situations that they're in. Houston is in the South, so they would fit in the SEC. And we could just put an NFL team in Tuscaloosa and just switch them. That would work. We kind of, we kind of do have an NFL team in Tuscaloosa, or, or an NFL feeding frenzy in Tuscaloosa, for lack of a better term. But like the Colts, right? Let's, they tried it with they tried it with, with Phillip this year, and it was okay with, with mixed results. Now, I don't think Nick Casario has any interest in trading to Sean Watson inside the division. But again, if he's going to make it difficult, he can make it as difficult as he wants to. I mean, Andy Reid once traded Donovan McNabb inside the division. And yes, he was much more into the back end of his career. But it does happen. It's, it's not like it never happens. The Colts are interesting, right? Because I, their offensive line is great. Their defensive line is great. Uh, they found that running game with Jonathan Taylor and Naheem Hines, and uh, I think they could use a little more explosion now on the outside. T.Y. didn't have the best of years this offseason or this past season, but the Colts would be an interesting team. Yeah, I think T.Y. and, and uh, Michael Pittman, the players that they have, become a whole lot more exciting if you add Deshaun Watson in there. We actually had him as number one in our quarterback value stat this year, despite the fact that the that the Texans were a dumpster fire, like you said. Um, I love what you were saying about Stafford to Denver as well. The weapons that they have there with Sutton coming back, with Jerry Judy, Hamler, as you mentioned. I, I think Stafford would easily be a top 10 quarterback, and they'd be an instant contender right there. So I think that's a fascinating one. The, Watson, to me, is a, such a no-brainer. It, just the price tag is really the, the only question mark. I, to me, I would give up five first-round picks for him and almost not even think about it. I just think the value. what kind of value can you place on Deshaun Watson at age 25 uh, at the top of his game? It is interesting because I think for the first time, the last couple of years, we've seen NFL players sort of flex their muscles in terms of what they want. NBA style. Yeah, like the NBA has done for years. And even though these contracts are much more binding, the salary cap issue, 
there's look, if a player wants out, he can make it as easy or as difficult as he wants. The, the one that sort of was going and percolating toward the end of the season, which is also fascinating for me, is what's going on in Philadelphia. I don't think there's any reason they should make any moves in Philadelphia at this point because what you're paying Jalen Hurts as a second round pick and what Joe Carson Wentz, it can work. You just got to find out if you can uh, sort of rehab Carson this offseason. Like, I also look, I, I think Jalen Hurts has the potential to be a really good starting quarterback, but the sample size is not there yet. So, I, if I'm the Eagles, I can't look at what I've seen on Jalen and say, yeah, it's worth getting rid of Carson based on what we know. You don't know yet. So, you know, like the two big, the biggest names that would move in terms of what they've been to the franchise would be Wentz and, and Aaron Rodgers. At the end of the day, I'm not sure either one of them is going anywhere. Although if they were thinking about trading Wentz, uh, I would be very curious to see whether Frank Reich in Indianapolis could resuscitate his career, given that he's the one who was there in Philly when Wentz had the really good year. No question. Uh, but that, you know, that, then that, that contract becomes very problematic. Is it, is it doable? Yes. But there's still going to be a massive hit on, on Philadelphia there. Yeah, I know the stock market's going crazy today, but I don't. I don't know if we could do a, a buy low. If you could sell that low on on Carson Wentz with the price tag being what it is, it, it almost you might have to actually pay to get rid of him. I don't think you could buy high enough on Deshaun Watson. I agree. Like you said, I, if someone said five first round picks for Deshaun Watson, it wouldn't be like that's insane. It'd be like, yeah, I get it. Let me ask you: You've spent a lot of time in your career around both former players and the stats and info folk at ESPN. How do you watch the game differently now than you did before you met like all these people, both both the former players and the stats folks? Well, it's it's interesting because the guys that do the stats and info for ESPN are just so good, and they've been so great to me. Whether it's uh, you know an Evan Kaplan or so many of the guys that I work, Vince Massey, uh, a guy named Jim Carr who helped me with the draft. Those guys are just David Gordon. They're, they're so good. Doug Clawson, what they do at their job is just so phenomenal. And, and it helps frame things. Like, I look to players for what they see during games. And then the stats and info guys help frame why things happen the way they did. And, you know, like, there are certain stats that, that don't mean anything to me. Like, well, you know, he's 4-1 and one against uh, – the Browns over his career. Well, they played over six years in his form one. Those teams are completely different. That doesn't mean anything to me. You know, what means something to me are things that are tangible and like the, the, the arbitrary, like degree stat, I always think is funny. Well, they're, you know, they're 17 and two and it's 39. Well, why'd you pick 39? Like what? What's 38? What's 37? Like those things to me don't mean much. It's, it's things that they come up with that are, that are predictable patterns based on, uh, either a team's behavior or a player's behavior that I find most fascinating. And those guys that I mentioned have just been awesome for me over the years. All right. One more fun one before you get out of here. Your podcast goes deep into Super Bowl history. This season is all about it. Who's your favorite unheralded Super Bowl performer? I'll give you a spoiler alert. Mark Simons was Steve Weatherford. But who's your favorite unheralded performer or what's your favorite undertold Super Bowl story? Well, it's funny, you know, like I, punters get love too. Like Mike Cyphers once won a game for the Chargers against the uh, against the Colts in the division round. Like he literally won the game. He, he pinned them down there every time. And, you know, nobody talks about it because Darren Sproles returned the overtime and got the, and scored. But like 
Cyphers kept him in the game. Like if Cyphers wasn't punting the way he was punting, there's no way they would have beaten. Mike Lodish was the first name that came to mind when when you asked me this question. Mike Lodish was a was a tenth round pick of the Buffalo Bills as a defensive tackle in 1990. So he got there in 1990 when they went to Super Bowl 25. His first four years in the league, he went to four straight Super Bowls and lost. And then he played a couple of years more in Buffalo when they didn't get there. And then he went to Denver. And then they, his first year at Denver, they lost to Jacksonville in the first round of the playoffs where Mark Brunel went up to mile high and just smoked him. But the next two years, they went back to the Super Bowl and they won back-to-back Super Bowls in Super Bowls 32 and 33. So Lodish, it was not a guy who played a bunch. He's not a guy that anybody would remember. He was 73, I think, with the Bills, 97, I think, as a defensive tackle with, with, the, with the Broncos. But he went through the experience and the agony of four straight Super Bowl losses as a bit player, a role player. And then at the back end of his career, he gets to Denver and is on a back-to-back Super Bowl winning team. I just, I've always thought that was kind of cool. And nobody will remember the name Mike Lodish. And I don't know why he's always stuck out with me. I, I just, I remember when he was drafted and he was a pretty decent player. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't on the Daryl Talley or, you know, Biscuit or anybody like those guys in the Bills. But he was a good player. Four straight Super Bowl losses. Then he finally goes to Denver and they end up winning two in a row. I always thought that was kind of a cool story. That's awesome. Aaron, I, I saw you nodding along. It sounds like you have some memory of that. Yeah, the only time anybody ever heard of Mike Lotus was like a few years ago when Brady finally played at his sixth and then seventh because they were like, well, whose record did he break? Mike Lotus, who the hell is that? Like, I believe now him and Goskowski are tied with six and then Brady is way past. Exactly. It's just insane. All right. On that note, we will sign off and get out of here. Thank you so much, Trey. And thank you to all of our listeners. As always, you can find Aaron on Twitter at FO underscore a shots. You can find me at Matt Mano. Trey, where can the listeners keep up with you? Listen, Half Forgotten History is available wherever you get your podcast. It's also my YouTube page, Trey Wingo Presents. Again, season two is all about Super Bowl champions. Uh, we got Zach Ertz coming up this week. We've got uh, Ed Reed, uh, Teddy Bruschi, a lot of big names, and it's good. it's been a lot of fun. And uh, season three is already in production, so we're we're in good shape, and we're looking forward to uh, keeping it going. Fantastic, Aaron. Footballoutsiders.com. What can the listeners find on the website this week? Film room uh, looks at the Tampa Bay offense and how they use motion to make things easier on Tom Brady. We have our quick reads bonus keys to beating Tampa Bay from their worst games this year. We'll do Kansas City next week. And, you know, we'll have our big Super Bowl preview stuff next week. Uh, lots of good discussion. The the, uh, the prop bet extravaganza may be up by the time this podcast comes out. Our 18th annual prop bet extravaganza, the first, always duplicated, never matched. As always, you can check out the free SIS Data Hub by visiting sisdatahub.com. For our guest, Trey Wingo, my co-host, Aaron Schatz, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Matt Manicharian, and thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Off the Charts Football Podcast. Podcast.